Roger Lemke is one of Australia's most successful operatic and concert artists. With a career spanning over 30 years performing in opera, music theatre, film and concert. His career began in musical theatre, leading to a chance encounter with a singing teacher who suggested he might have a voice for opera. He is a recipient of a number of prestigious vocal competitions and scholarships, including both Melbourne and Sydney Sanarias in the same year, and the Metropolitan Opera Award. He also won the Belcanto Foundation Chicago Scholarship, studying with internationally acclaimed singer Carlo Bergonzi in Italy. He has appeared with all major Australian and New Zealand companies in a diverse range of principal roles, including Papageno in The Magic Flute, Taddeo in The Italian Girl in Algiers, Giuseppe in The Gondoliers, Count Boni in The Gypsy Princess, two seasons as Marcello in the highly acclaimed Baz Luhrmann production of La Boheme, and The Engineer in the world premiere of The Eighth Wonder by Alan John. Return visits to the musical theatre have provided him opportunities to play Inspector Javert in Les Miserables and Old Deuteronomy in Cats. His extensive knowledge of the industry and repertoire provides the solid platform from which he now mentors, manages and coaches today's young artists, embarking on their own careers in vocal performance. Yeah, and he was playing to something like 175 people. Hmm. You can't get one like that. No, no, not at all. Not at all. You know, whereas when we did Oklahoma, we did it for six months in Sydney at the Theatre Royal, and it was packed every night. Well, it's R&H, isn't it? Rogers and Hammerstein. Um... And also, it was the same in Melbourne when we, you know, when I did um, when I did Les Mis, it was we were paying to sort of ninety five percent attendance every night, two shows, two matinees, and but I doubt whether you'd get that now. Is the theater, Cats was packed too when I did Cats. Is the theatre audience changing though, do you think, for, for live performance? I mean, we've got the advent of streaming now and yeah, other I, entertainments. Is that sort of... Um... Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a different world now because I think people are going to live theatre, like as in concerts, bands and all that sort of thing, because they want that experience of, you know, seeing Elton John or, you know, and the sound quality is terrific now. But... Um, it's it's just it's a different world now. This twenty first century compared to what it was when I started in professional theatre in in the eighties. It was uh, people wanted to go. That the the, um, the audiences were, you know, I was twenty eight, twenty nine, and then now it's uh, as I said to you earlier on that the older people that are funding, uh, putting generous donors that are giving a lot of money to particularly opera, um, they're not going to be here in 10, 10 years' time. And I don't see the people coming up that have that interest to keep it going. And it's very sad. We don't really have a culture of those benefactors on no. a big scale, do we? You go to New York or oh, London, absolutely. you read a program and you've got... Exactly. Well, when I first went to New York to sing, when I won the Metropolitan Opera Competition, I, I went to see um, Verdi's Don Carlo and... I got the program, and I'm looking. Mr. Domingo's fee is sponsored by Gladys Kafoops. And wow. you can imagine he's probably getting you know, a million dollars a performance or something for doing it. Wow. And these, this is what the benefactors are giving the Metropolitan Opera. But it's also sad to see all these other opera companies that have gone by the wayside. San Diego's gone, a number of them in Europe, uh, because they just can't get the funding from state governments. And that's what's keeping it going. Otherwise, the, the, the prices um, in Germany, when I first went to Germany in the 80s, it was heavily funded by uh, the state governments to keep the prices down. Well, opera should be for the people. Of course it, it should be. Yeah. And this is before the war came down. Yeah. And then um, I don't know what's changed, whether it has changed much now, but they were reliant. You know, you were paying 70 Deutschmarks for a a ticket, which was pretty reasonable in those days. And you were seeing good singers too. Um, but, you know, English National Opera struggling. Um, it's Covent Garden. I was there last year and saw a production of Tosca, which was fabulous. The American tenor was great in it. Um, but, you know, they're not, they're not doing this at the moment. And I know particularly with Victoria State Opera, um, 
Richard Mills is doing a terrific job as musical director, um, but to get funding from the, the government, they've got to do uh, original Australian work, which I'm all for that. I think it's fantastic. But they've also got to do the mainstream operas as well. Mm. And, you know... I guess that's what people want to see as well. That's right. Yeah. They do. They do, Pete. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go and see some esoteric piece that was written in 1948 or something that is atonal. I mean, people won't go and see that. Um, I want to, I love, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, I like Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, um, but you can't do, you've got to do, I mean there was a, um, I was adjudicating a competition, uh, the aria final of Ringwood on Saturday evening, and there was a girl that sang uh, an amazing piece from Smetner's The Bartered Bride, which I happened to see, a friend of mine was in it in Karlsruhe in Germany years ago. And it's a very wordy piece, but it's a fantastic piece. And you've got to see the opera to get anything out of it. And a lot of those operas, if you take an aria out of it, it doesn't sort of really work. You've got mm. it's it's a bit like Sondheim. Yep. You've got to see the show mm. because context. it's wordy. Yeah, yeah, it's wordy. Um, you take a lot of Sondheim music, which I've done a lot of concert work with Sondheim, like. Um, from Company Being Alive and that sort of thing, which is a great song. Um, but it sort of loses a bit when you take it out of context yeah. of the show. Yeah. Um, to fully appreciate it. Yeah, to fully appreciate it, yeah. But surely there's a, there's a room for us in Australia with our companies and composers to tell Australian stories. I mean, we're about to see uh, the Brett Whiteley opera. Mm, mm. Uh, there was Lindy Chamberlain's opera. Mm. You were in The Eighth Wonder. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there's, there's it was it was amazing piece because that was originally written, um, and there was a, of course when the Sydney Opera House was built all those years ago, there was a lot of controversy um, about Utzon, the the designer of it, and the government at the time said, "Who wants opera? No one's interested in opera," and of course it's one of the landmarks of Australia now, and and also when the theatre. It was it, the concept in the theatre was what Utzon originally designed was completely different to what it ended up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know about, and um, but it's an icon. The the facade of the Sydney Opera House. It's a. I, I've always felt privileged when I worked at the Opera House that I'd, I'd get the train into Circular Quay and I'd walk around and I said. How cool is this <laughs> singing of principal role at the Sydney Opera House? And, and, and having been there a few times now, that brutalist uh, architecture mm. look. Uh, at first, you walk in, you think, "Oh, it's like a bloody football grandstand yeah. or something." But <laughs> yeah. but now, that's uh, I think really part of the charm of it. Oh, it is. And when they light it up on special occasions and um, put lighting on the curves and the arches of the Opera House, it's it's quite incredible. Yeah. You performed there quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you ever lose that? That buzz of no, I didn't really. No, no, no it's because it's it's funny. I always remember remember saying to someone um, in an interview years ago that I've been in a lot of theatres all over the place, and of course the principal dressing rooms and any dressing room really for that matter, you're in the bowels of the theatre as you would know mm. as a performer, but in the principal dressing rooms of the Sydney Opera House, you're actually looking over the the bay. Mm. And it's quite amazing that I, and I used to have friends that come back and I'd say, look, I'll sign you in at the stage door, just come backstage and come round to the dressing room and, and uh, I'll have a glass of wine for you there. And, and they walk in and they go, wow, you look over the, 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 the bay. Prime real estate. And, and I said, this is not normal in the theatre, believe no, me. That's right, no, you don't get not. any view at all, do no, you? No, you don't, no, no. So, yeah, no, it was always a buzz, you know, singing at the Opera House and... And particularly doing concerts at the concert hall in the Opera House as well. It was a very... And also acoustically, the Opera House concert hall particularly, and, and the Opera Theatre, are very good because there's a lot of wood. Yes, the materials that in, were in, used to build yes, this. Yes, yeah. whereas um, a lot of these modern theatres today, um, there's carpet everywhere and they have to do things acoustically in the, in the roof to make it... Um, more enhanced for the singer to get feedback from. Like, it was interesting, when I sang at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, it holds 4,800 people, mm. and when you're standing on the stage and there's five tiers, you go, ah, and your voice, you can feel it hit the back and come right back at you. Now, that's how good the acoustic is yeah. in a theatre. It's quite phenomenal. Well, designed by people who understand Absolutely. performance and the needs well, of Well, you look at the theatres that were built in the 19th century, 
um, in Italy, um, they were acoustically wonderful. And with technology today, I can't understand why they can't replicate that. Exactly. You know, they throw up a building in, you know, two months. Yeah. Then it starts falling apart. I know. 12 months later. Well, I mean, what's going on in Melbourne with the. you know these apartments that are being built with the bats and all that sort of thing. There, yeah. it's it's extraordinary. I don't know how planning allow it. You know because there's got to be building permits issued and all that sort of thing. But theatres, um, they certainly got it right in Europe in the mm. two hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. our temples. <laughs> so let, let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Ballarat. I certainly did. Was that a good place to grow up? Well, I thought it was when I went through schooling. I went to Ballarat College. And I was very lucky that my parents sent me there from prep grade to year 12. And it was a boys' school until I was in Form 2. So you had to wear caps and ties and Oh, you were there sort of for the merger with Clarendon, were Yes, you? I was, yeah. Right. yeah. So, um, and it's funny, when I went to... You, you knew Ballarat was a cold place. But until I moved to Melbourne... Um, I used to sort of, everyone would say, oh, Ballarat, it's so cold. And I thought, oh, well, it's, yeah, it's cold, but it's not that bad. Until I went to Melbourne, I used to go back and visit my parents. And you'd get to the Pentland Hills, and suddenly the temperature would drop in the car about six degrees. Yes, you know? yes. And, um, but I can remember, as you probably do, performing in Her Majesty's, yeah. we'd be doing a show there, and you'd arrive at, you know, seven o'clock, and it was win- middle of winter, and you'd park your car at the back of the theatre. <laughs> yeah, and you come say. out at 11, 11 o'clock or 10.30 and there's ice about that thick On your windscreen. Screen. It was unbelievable. You just don't get that You'd now. have to carry a, a bottle of water around. You to, did, you yeah, did. In yeah. order to... <laughs> Absolutely. It was, uh, but no, growing up in Ballarat was great. And I also remember um, playing underage football, like under 12 or under 10 football at um, Ballarat College Oval. And of course, those days... If you were in the underage group, you'd start playing at nine o'clock in the morning. And I can remember there was ice on the puddles oh, wow. in the winter. Yeah. It was so cold. And your fingers were so numb yeah, to catch yeah. the footy. Was... And of course, college weren't very good in the under 10s either. So <laughs> I'm standing in the forward line, freezing to death. <laughs> Just wanting a pie or a hot dog. <laughs> so it, it was a very artistic household, yeah. I know. Um, yeah, it was. Well, your, I... your grandfather. Well, my a... grandfather, George... Um, he um, came back from the war, um, in the First World War, um, and he opened a manufacturing shop in, in Ballarat. Uh, he was born in North Melbourne. Um, and then my, my nan, Alice, um, I have fond memories of them. Um, George is a bit grumpy, old bloke, but he was a nice grandfather. And they had a beautiful place in Barclay Street, which was on an acre of land, and they had a lovely garden. And it was, it was always a treat as a young boy to go over there and play in the garden and go, you know, getting tadpoles and frogs. And and the great thing about those days, you had to make your own fun, as you would know. Absolutely. You know, mum would say, um, right, off you go, be back at five o'clock. Before the street And you'd run around mullock heaps and have a great time. And there was no... Explore old gold mines. Yes, it was was amazing fun. (laughs) You know, and and all the... When I was young... um, there were a lot of uh, kids in our street, our similar ages, and we used to play. And there was a we called the Heatherland in the middle. There was an island, and we used to mow it and play cricket on it and kick the football. And it was just great fun. And yeah. that, the kids aren't doing that anymore today. No, no, you know, it's no. a different world therapy. Different world. Mm. So was George musical? Yeah, he was a singer, right. um, an amateur singer, yeah, yeah. but he sang. Uh, in the, the the choir, he was a Freemason, as my father was. Um, What's a Freemason? You know, the lodge. They would go to the lodge, yeah, and yeah. dress up, and yes, I knew they like the Lions Club, yeah, yeah, around, a little bit like that. But it was uh, more Masonic. Um, the the Freemasons were very big in the sixties and so, and there was all the secrecy about like the Dallas Brooks Hall Certain in Melbourne. And oh things. yeah, they had the, the handshakes. And yeah. In fact, Dad, in the end, told me that. The, the, the sign to, to shake hands and let them know you were a mason. It all sounds a bit sus, really. But also, yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you a story also. During the Great uh, Depression in the early 30s, um, my grandfather's business was suffering and one of the lodge chaps said, George, I hear you're, uh, you're not going too well at the moment. And he said, no, look, things are pretty crook with this depression. And he said, uh, how much do you need? And he said, no, no, I'm not taking you. He said, no, no, how much? I know you'll pay me back. He said, oh, 500 quid. 
So I said, consider it done. And it got him out of Scrape. That's how so the Masonic... A brotherhood. Yeah, yeah, it was a brotherhood. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, of course, my dad was born in 29. And he... My grandfather taught him. Um, also, my grandmother, Alice, was a very good pianist. So dad had a, a mother that could play the piano. Um, and during South Street in the years in the, the 40s and that sort of thing, the, the contestants would come up to Ballarat and they would go over and do practice at my grandparents' place to warm up and do all that sort of thing. So it was a very musical musical family. In fact, in 1947, Dad entered the competitions and that year there was an adjudicator from Sydney named Roland Foster who was at the Sydney Conservatorium who was adjudicated that year. And Dad won every section the leader, the art song, oratorio, except the aria, and he got third in the aria. And my agent, Jennifer Eddy, was in the final with Dad. Bob Allman, who was a famous baritone. Recently with, passed away. Yes, yeah. recently passed away. He got second, I think. Um, and Roland Foster went to my grandparents and said, look, I think your son has an extraordinary instrument there. If he comes and studies with me in Sydney, I will have him singing at Covent Garden in about three or four years. And my grandfather said, no, 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 because he wanted me to go into the manufacturing business. Oh, okay. And also opera wasn't... There wasn't opera in those days. And, of course, in well, the 50s... Is well before yeah, the opera house. The Sutherland and Williamson... Or a company, yeah. ...started in the 50s, and that's when Joan Sutherland came to prominence and... Uh, but there weren't the opportunities to young singers. But Dad always sang semi-professionally and, of course, was heavily involved in lyric theatre and the Light Opera Company in Ballarat. So singers like Elsie Morrison yeah. and all that, they, yeah. they had to go overseas, really. Well, they, they did, too. and she married a, a famous conductor. Um, and I'll, t I'll tell you a funny story a bit later on. Just remind me about Elsie Morrison because um, when I won the Melbourne Sun Aria, she, she was actually there at the final and no-one knew... Well, obviously, South Street knew she was coming, but we, I didn't know. And um, I'll tell you a funny story later. <laughs> Keep bated breath. <laughs> we'll look, look forward to it. What about your, your mum? Was she artistic in mum, any way? Well, she was played the piano a bit, but um, no, mum was in that era of, you know, you got married, you had the kids, it was the housewife, the husband went off and earned the money. and uh, um, But no, she wasn't really... She went to Queen's College in Ballarat, um, and which was a girls' school in those days. Um, she had two sisters that were younger. Um, but no, she wasn't... Uh, she used to love music, because um, Dad would do a lot of concerts in Ballarat and surrounding... He was always out when I was a young kid growing up, and he'd be going to Horsham or, you know, anywhere to do these concerts, because, um, you know, the television was in its complete infancy in those mm, days mm. Um, and a lot of people did go to concerts and of course he was very involved in the Freemasons he was a past master which was like the Grand Pooh Bar of the, of the Lodge um, so he was always very involved with um, the Freemasons but eventually um, he settled down to do a lot of community theatre yeah and yeah, he and did was yeah, a renowned singing teacher in the 60s and 70s yeah. um, I told a story at Dad's funeral I remember when I was about 14 Dad won Showcase Oh, on Channel Channel O it was then. Pre-New Faces. Yeah, yeah, 1970, I think it was. Right. Um, and Showcase was a great show because Hector Crawford used to conduct the orchestra. Great. And Dad won uh, that, and they did a country tour of prize winners from the, the Showcase. I remember him coming to Ballarat, and there was a tenor named Thomas Edmonds who was from South Australia that um, I went with my grandparents and mum to the concert. It was at the Civic Hall in Ballarat. And Dad and Tom got up and sang this wonderful duet from the Pearl Fishers. Um, they did it in English. And um, I just, I was about 14 and I, th I thought, what a wonderful duet. What a wonderful piece of music this is. And of course, I've gone on and done these roles and, and done that duet in French so many times with my dear friend David Hobson. Another Ballarat boy. Yeah, another Ballarat boy. His father, uh, Phil, was a great... He was like a second dad to me, Phil, and uh, he and Dad did a lot of shows together in, at um, Her Majesty's, and um, 
and I have so many fond memories of, you know, uh, Sound of Music and, um, you know, all these great, great shows. We talk about theatres. Mm. I mean, Ballarat's pretty lucky to have yeah. Her Majesty's Theatre. They that, are. That, that, well, that, it was called the Memorial Theatre in those old days, which you would remember. Absolutely. And then they uh, completely renovated the theatre. Um, back in, oh, do you remember what it was? Oh, it was about 1980 something. Yes. Oh no, probably no, a bit later. A bit later, 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they did it. You know, the whole foyer and everything changed. And uh, but it was always a great theatre to sing in too. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I've done a lot, lot there, and it's uh, very fond memories of it. Yeah. So, what what artistic outlets did you have as a boy? Well, I played the piano. In fact, because of Dad was always singing and having rehearsals in the home, um, they really Dad wanted me to learn the piano because he didn't play the piano, and um, so they sort of forced me to, when I was seven to start learning the piano. <clears throat> but I'd come home from school and I was interested in kicking the football and doing all that rather than piano practice, <clears throat> and. Um, uh, reluctantly, they said when I was about nine, look, you're not practising, you can give it away. But then when I was about 13, I took it up under my own uh, volition right. and uh, I did up to sixth grade piano. But, of course, in those days, I didn't think I'd be going into professional theatre. I think I would have certainly... More if I had... Have, yes. You know, I'd known that I would have, uh, would have done that. But I think, you know, I, I could teach myself a role I could you know uh, you know as far as understanding music I, I I was good at it you know so and my brother David who went into music as well David he was never really a, he never did grade music or anything but I had to use music to play whereas David just played by ear and he could play jazz like you wouldn't believe it was phenomenal um, yeah so it's it's just interesting how music takes the person. It often depends on the teacher, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. There with was you, a great... with you gel with them and oh, uh... absolutely. Um, and it can turn you off a study. Well, as all well. the all the top people. I initially learnt um, piano and did the early grades from my aunt Barbara, Dad's sister, who was uh, a nun at the Convent of Mercy in in uh, Ballarat, and she taught me up to fifth grade, fourth grade, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I went to a, a, a lady in Urquhart Street who was a, who, if anyone was showed any promise as a pianist, they would go to her. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, the Hobsons went to her and everyone went to her. And she was a lovely lady. And, um, but she was a, a fabulous teacher of the old school too, you know. You must practice. What was her name? Um, oh, what was her name? I can't remember. It'll come to me. I can't remember. But she was a, she was a great... Uh, exponent of it's like me with she could tell when you came from a lesson and I used to go uh, college I'd finish at two o'clock on a Friday and I'd be in my cricket gear because I played first 11 cricket and I'd go down to her place and I'd have a lesson and then I'd come back and play cricket but she could always tell as I can because I teach singing as well I used to have young students when I was singing full time who'd come from schools and all that and their parents would be sitting in and I used to read that. as soon as they opened their mouth I could tell whether they've done any practice or not right. and it's yeah. a bit the same with playing the piano yeah um, and you've got just because there's practice. no development no. or that well you know I, I teach technique yeah. and I can always tell because it's interesting and I won't go into all the details of it but it's, I learnt the bel canto style from, particularly from a mentor of mine who was in Italy named Carlo Bergonzi, who was a famous tenor. And um, there was also a teacher that was in the third, 1930s called Cesare, which was a, a great exponent, a great teacher of the bel canto technique. And he based uh, his theories on everything at pitch has to modify the vowels according to the laws of acoustic. So in other words, if you're singing an R vowel, it's a pure R vowel at middle to lower pitch. But at the higher we go in the range to the top of the voice, the vowel has to modify according to the laws of acoustic. So uh, uh, let's just select an R vowel through thought only, not you singing an or or an O vowel, yeah. through thought only. So you're going from ah. Uh, 
no. Ah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, the voice comes from the head, right? Not from. I know it sounds crazy because your voice comes out of your yeah from your mouth, but it's up here because when you sing from up here, hi, hi there, Peter, how are you? It's it's rather than hi, Peter, how are you? Yeah, yeah. That's the sound up in the head voice that you can diminuendo, crescendo, sing softly, and to me. It's terrific when a, a, you know, a tenor sings a high note, but one thing that really moves me is when they sing softly. Yes. It's beautiful. It's the um, flat chat. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, who'd have thought that singing was such a scientific... Yeah, well, I, I always my dad, when I was going off to do a, a show, and, uh, you know, Dad used to come up um, and, and see the shows that I was in, and he and Connie, and I'd sign them in at the, the stage door, and... And, you know, I said, oh, look, I've got to go, you know, I've got to get ready and get makeup on and all that. He said, well, keep your voice up. He said, and good luck. Yeah. He'd say, keep your voice up. It was always, and Dad was a great exponent of the voice being up in your head yeah. um, and connecting with vocal support and all that sort of thing. But I think also if I maintain that theory, not only just for opera, but if you're singing music theatre, Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, Les Mis, uh, Phantom of the Opera, you can still up here. Night time sharpens, heightens each sensation. Not night time. It doesn't become musical. It's much lighter. Yeah. 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 And of course, everything with musical theatre now has got vocal enhancement, you've got EQ on it, you've got all that, and the sound departments can do amazing things to voices. Mm. Whereas opera, there's no microphones. So, so you've got that technique there. How then do you bring the heart, the emotion into it? Well, that's one thing that I'm very... Because I'm chair of a music board at the moment where we raise a significant amount of money through donors to send a young singer, postgraduate student, to the Royal College of Music in London. And one of the th- I've been on this board for 10 years now. And one of the things that I see young professional singers, they've all got the voices, but... It's what they're lacking is getting the text across to the audience. Being a good actor. Being a good yeah. actor. I mean, and that's what separated Sutherland yeah. and Callis. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, Callis was well. Callis, when she did that famous production, nineteen sixty-four of Tosca at Covent Garden, I've never seen. You can see it in black and white. It's all on YouTube, and that. Yeah. You want to see the performance of the act too? It is yeah. unbelievable. Apart from the singing, um, but you, you know, in opera. Yes, Benjamin Britten wrote all his operas in, in English, but when you're looking at uh, Mozart, Puccini, Verdi, it's it, Italian, you're singing in French, uh, German, you've got to get that text across. And that's what makes the difference, I believe, Pete, to good singers, good voices, to outstanding performances when you go there and you they become the character. Mm. It's mm. like you go and see Hamlet. Yes, yes. It's a five-hour play. That merging of character and actor. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's all in the text. It's all in the text. So if you learn an opera in Italian or French or German, mm. do you translate the... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, have a, the, I don't know what other singers do, but if it's um, what I normally do, if it's an opera I don't know, um, I read everything I can about it when it was written, you know, the relationship with other characters in it, obviously listen to it, um, but then I sit down and translate it myself. Because I guess in training, you've got to learn other languages. Oh, absolutely. Well, I did French at school, um, but my best language is Italian because I studied over there and and most of the operatic repertoire that I've sung has either been in Italian or French, really. Um, I have done some German. But German's not my best language at all. But um, I love singing in Italian because it's all on the vowel. Everything is I-O. Everything you sing, you know, like um, lagrima. It's all on the vowel. Yeah. And that's where we hear the tone in the voice, yeah. on a vowel, not on a consonant. So is German difficult to sing because it's quite guttural? Yeah, it is yeah. quite yeah. guttural. Also Russian as well. Right. It's, um, you know, Yavash lublu lublu bismirnya. And it's, it's... But you've still got to make usage of the vowel because that's where we... Um, that's where we hear the voice. Right. Um but it was interesting when I was studying with Bergonzi in Italy, 
um, we were having a meal, the whole group of us, one night, and he came in, and we were just—I was having a chat to him—and I said, um, "Maestro, uh, with breathing, you know, where do you take the breath?" And he said, "You breathe wherever you want to. Listen to Frank Sinatra." <laughs> yes. And I went, oh my "God, you're right." You know, <laughs> it's um, because you—you you listen to Frank when he sings, "Oh, the shark bay has such teeth, dear," and he grows them pearly whites. And he's singing, and he, he was the only artist I know really sang on consonants. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. The text again. Um, but it's, uh, it's extraordinary when you see, an, um, there's a wonderful tenor who uh, is German, but he speaks fluent French, German, Italian, um, named Jonas Kaufmann. Oh, yes. And he's a yeah. dramatic tenor. And it, wow, uh, when he was in Melbourne a couple of years ago, um, I went to it. I, you know, paid three hundred and something dollars to go, but it was the best concert I've ever. Because he sang, you know, all the, the famous Tosca arias, Andre Chenier, and and with full orchestra and the sound, and it was all up in his head. It was all up here, and I went, "Wow, that's a thrilling sound." And I guess when when all of those um, elements come together, mm. it touches the soul. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah it's some, there was a bel canto concert um, on Saturday evening that the Victorian Opera did, and a famous soprano named Jessica Pratt, who's having a, she's Australian, she's having a huge career in Europe and. You know, sings at La Scala and all over the place. But she sings all this bel canto repertoire, and she's quite amazing what she can do. It's an, it's like another Sutherland. Yeah, it, that's the sort of voice. You know, coloratura soprano, and and there was also um, a, a mezzo there. I wasn't at the concert, but I was talking to friends that were there, and they said um, this mezzo, who's Italian, was just amazing. The two of them together were, you know, they did duets. It was just quite stunning. Brilliant. And you don't get that often, you know. So as a young man from Ballarat, how did opera enter your orbit? When did you realise you might well, have a voice? Well, it was interesting because I made, I got it to professional theatre. Uh, it was 1982. And Is in, this the Oklahoma? Yeah, the Oklahoma. Yep. And what I did, um, I was very lucky because in those days, Pete, um, you're younger than me, but... Um, we to get into professional theatre, you had to be an actor's equity, mm. but it was a catch twenty two. You couldn't get into actors equity unless you had a professional job. Mm. So, I was doing a, a, an amateur production in Melbourne. I was working at Channel Nine at the time, and I was doing an amateur production of Carousel, playing Billy Bigelow at um, a theatre in Burwood. And during the run of it, um, one night after the show, there was a knock on the dressing room door, uh, and this woman walked in and said, "Roger." And I said, wow. And she said, I'm Betty Pounder. And I said, I know who you are. She, Betty Pounder, as you know, is a Betty, wonderful yeah. dancer and choreographer. Worked with J.C. Williams. J.C. Williams. Yeah. Well, she was casting director at Crawford's at the time. And she said, I think you've got a lot of talent and I would like you to do a screen test to Crawford's. And I went, oh, yes, thank you. you know? <laughs> um, so... At this Funny stage, enough, were you, I mean, you were delving in an amateur level, yeah, I, but you'd yeah. never thought of it as a profession. No, no, no I no. just loved performing and singing and yep. all that sort of thing. And um, so I went and did this screen test at Crawford's, and that got me my access equity card. So I did some bit parts on Sullivan's and Cop Shop at the time. This was in the 70s. Yep. And, um, or, no, 80s, early 80s. And um, then... They were auditioning for um, at Oklahoma, had just been done in London with John Diedrich playing the lead, Curly. It was a Cameron Macintosh, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a Cameron Macintosh production. And uh, it was coming to Australia to do an 18 month tour. And they were auditioning for people in the show. So I remember um, going down to the Palais in St Kilda and singing for Jamie Hammerstein, Oscar Hammerstein's son. Yeah. And I ended up. Um, getting a small part in it and also understudying Curly, um, John Diedrich in it. So we did, we started in Adelaide, then we went to Sydney for six months, Melbourne for six months and finished in Brisbane. And at the time we finished in Brisbane, the uh, Lyric Opera of Brisbane were looking for a nucleus of singers for, for their upcoming 1983 season. And they wanted people to do understudy roles, smaller roles in operetta, opera, 
and that sort of thing. So I auditioned for them and, and got accepted. So uh, that's where I met my great mentor, who was a wonderful repetiteur named Peter Locke, who came out from London, and he'd been a, rep- a repetiteur at the Fenice in Venice and various opera houses in Europe. And uh, I did I did some understudying. I devised a Western tour program in, in um, Queensland that year. And from then, that's when I uh, applied for a position with the Bel Canto Foundation of Chicago to go to Italy for a six-week mentoring program with Bagonzi. That's when I went to Italy. And I was going to London to work with um, with Peter and, and that sort of thing. And it, at, at that sojourn before I went to Italy, I auditioned for my agent, uh, who was the top operatic agent in Australia, named Jennifer Eddy, and she accepted me. And I also I sang for her in London initially, and also she was a director of a, a the Lee Saskinis Agency in London, who represent top singers in London. So I got accepted into them uh, as well, and then went to Italy, um, and had just the most amazing experience there. Um, but when I when I was doing Oklahoma in Sydney for the six months, I thought I better start getting serious about my voice here if I'm going to. And I was recommended by. James Christensen, who I saw in Adelaide, who I knew, Jim, and he said, you want to go to this guy called Raymond MacDonald? He's a retired tenor, but he would sang a lot with the Australian Opera, and he'll you know, work on your technique. So I went to Rain, he took a shine to me, and he said, and I did, you know, the music theatre, but he said, you've got definitely an operatic quality to your voice. Would you like to pursue that? And I said, oh, anything that'll prove my technique. And he was the one that sort of said, well, you know, keep your voice up and whether you're singing music theatre or concert work or whatever you're doing, or opera. So he was the man that started me on my operatic sojourn into, you know, that that side of things. Um, What year did you win the scenario? I won it in 1985. And I had a good year that year because I won won the Melbourne scenario, the Sydney scenario and the Metropolitan Opera competition. So That's only about about three years later. Sorry? That's about three years later. Yeah, from yeah. The, uh, But then I was busy because in 1984 I was accepted as a principal baritone um, with the Western Australian Opera Company. So I went there for, for 12 months. And that, that was where I played my first principal roles. And the first role was The Count in The Marriage of Figaro. Then I did Enrico and Lucia de Lamamore. <clears throat> and also, what else did we do that year? Uh, I did Merry Widow. And, yeah, that was the first principal roles, you know. And um, and it was, you know, the first journey into... I did Figaro in English, but we did Lucia in Italian. So that was... It was great to sing in other languages. And um, and then I got offered La Boheme with the Victoria State Opera in 1985. And that's when... That's a big year that I had. Because I couldn't afford... My parents couldn't afford to send me overseas. No. So fortunately, financially, I had a good year that allowed me to go and study in in um, England I went to the London Opera Centre there and met amazing one of my idols from when I started was um, Sir Thomas Allen who was a famous um, baritone who sang roles like The Count and the Figaro and Figaro and the Barbara of Seville which was one of my love I love doing Figaro and the Barbara of Seville because it's sort of got my personality really easy <laughs> and the first aria he sings everyone knows the Lago Affectatum so um but he was my idol, and I got to meet him, which was a great experience. Um, and I met all these wonderful singers, you know. And it was uh, so that was the journey that started it all in the the mid nineteen uh, eighties, and and uh, it sort of you know grew from there. I'm astounded at the number of opera singers that have actually come out of Ballarat. Mm. I mean, oh, it's you, amazing. Yourself, yeah. David Hobson, Jackie Dart. That's right. Um, yeah. Natalie Jones, um, your brother David. Mm. Um, right back to Mari Collier mm. and Elsie Morrison. Elsie Morrison. Which is your time to tell the Elsie yeah. Morrison story. Yeah, well, it was story. interesting because when I won the Melbourne Sun Aria, my dear, dear f- friend who passed away in 1996, Brian Stacey, who died the night before Sunset Boulevard was supposed to open in, in Melbourne, and he was a conductor of it. And I first met Brian when I was singing in Brisbane in 1982, so we became great pals. And um, he... Uh, he always used to get very nervous, Pete, before he had to conduct, or and he was a good pianist. 
But he used to get very. He used to he used to have to take beta blockers so he could. What? That, yeah, he was. Oh, get, wow. he used to get catatonic about it. Anyway, um, part of the gig of winning the aria is that you you were the winner was expected to go to Ballarat to sing in the prize winners concert at South Street in October. And um, I said to Brian, look, I've got to sing it because I won the aria. I've got to sing at this prize winners concert. Would you play for me? And he said, oh, God, oh, I get so, you know, I get so nervous. And I said, look, there'll be just the Ballarat community are going, you know. And he said, oh, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to do the Lago Affectata from Barbara Seville, which is, you know, it's, it's, it is quite difficult to play because it's, and it's, but Brian was a good pianist. And then I said, I'm going to do the soliloquy from Carousel as well. Oh, fine. Okay. So I drove up to, to Ballarat and we got there, you know, lunchtime and we had a rehearsal booked in the Her Majesty's just to have a run through. In the space. In the space. No one was there, of course, you know. So um, comes the night, and of course all these people are there, and um, the compere announces, welcome ladies and gentlemen to uh, the prize winners concert at Magic Theatre, and what a special night we've got, and two wonderful artists, uh, um, the Ballarat lady has come back, Miss Elsie Morrison and her husband, Raphael Kubelik, who was a famous conductor, and Brian went, my God, you saw told me no one would be there of note. And I said, I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, there was a function on afterwards and um, Raphael Kublik said, oh, bravo, maestro, to Brian. You played beautifully, you know. Fantastic. And Brian said, oh, never again. I want to do this. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was a funny, funny story, yeah. So as an opera singer, I guess you're a, you're a vocal athlete. Yeah, well, you've so, got to be. So, to so how do you, when you're performing, how do you care for your voice on a daily well, basis? Well, I mean, a lot of people go through rituals. I, my ritual was if I had a performance that day, whether it be a concert or a, an opera or a, even because I did Javert and Lane Miz, I'd have a ritual. I'd get up in the morning. I'd have a good night's sleep. Um, get up in the morning and just have a just vocalise. Mm-hmm, see if the voice is there. Eleven o'clock around that, I'd start. I'd have a decent breakfast. And um, I would start doing a few scales um, just to warm the voice up, not speak again. Four o'clock, maybe just go a few more, mm, with that, that's it. Go into the theatre wow. and uh, your voice is up. Because your voice that, actually warms rest. up during the day. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've got, and everyone gets vocal problems and all that sort of thing. But I maintain, Pete, if you get your voice up here. In the head. Yeah, because while kids are young, it's you've got in your vocal cords you've got sixty-five sets of muscles in here crisscrossing that make up this tiny area called the vocal cords. And what happens is air particles are coming through the vocal cords to vibrate sound. Like the higher you go, they vibrate at a, at a, a faster frequency than they do when you're singing down there. Yeah, know? yep, and. Um, but while you while you're young in your twenties and that, and um, you can, it's like an athlete. You can run. Yes. Yeah. Hey, you might strain something. Reasonably yeah. indestructible. But when you get into your thirties, if you're singing big operatic roles, yeah. you don't know what you're doing. That's when you'll start to get vocal issues. Well, I read that Renee Fleming uh, is phone phobic and she avoids the telephone on performance days. Oh right. Okay. Completely. Completely. Yeah. But also, um, she avoids coffee, uh, caffeine. Is that that not good for the voice? Uh, I don't really drink. I drink tea. I love tea. tea right. But um, I, I always have tea in the morning with, you know, some cereal or something like that. But I don't really drink coffee. And I wouldn't drink it during the day. But it's, the old thing is water. You yeah. Hydrate yourself. Yes. Um, it's the same with an actor, probably. I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to look after your voice. It's yeah. one of your tools, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you produce a, such a huge sound over an, over an orchestra? Because well, opera singers aren't mic'd, are they? No, they're not. No. And that's um, one of the things... The Italians have this wonderful word, which is really not translatable in English. It's called squillo. And the squillo is the edge on the voice. Um, I'd sort of demonstrated a bit before about going, if you go, ah, uh, that's down in, in the larynx, that's not the sound that cuts through an orchestra. This is a sound, yee, yee. That's the sound that cuts through an orchestra. People sometimes a metallic sound. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of like that. When I talked about the vowel modification before, when you, you know, you know, a lot of these young singers that sing on the Voice or Australia's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent, 
that they they go up to the top um, like a Whitney Houston ballady song, like mm. and I I will always love you. But they go I I will always. That's not the sound that cuts through an orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to get that edge on it, and that's the sound that cuts through an orchestra. And um, it's it. Uh, you, you just won't hear, you know, a lot of Wagner, you've got a hundred piece orchestra in the orchestra pit and you've got, it's, you know, you've got to know what you're doing yeah. to get across that. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the sound that get, that cuts through the orchestra. Yeah. Are you exhausted at the end of a performance? Uh, Is it very taxing? Well, it's taxing from the point of view, if you've got a big role, like Figaro is a big role, mm. um, big Verdi role or Puccini role. It's not, I feel... You know, people used to say to me, do you get nervous? And I said, when I was younger and doing The Count or something, I'd be you know, nervous to go on. But I think, as you would know as a performer, yeah. the more performing you do, the easier it becomes. The only thing I'd say that I, if I didn't know something well enough, yes. that's where I'd it's get being nervous. being prepared, isn't it? At being prepared, mm-hmm, my friend. Mm-hmm. It's, it's if, you, if, if you are prepared... And the other thing, Pete, once you get on stage, you haven't got time mm. because you, you, you've got recitative, you've got aria, you've got you've been directed for at least four weeks by a director, um, and uh, it's 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 and being prepared. That's it. Get yeah. with a coach, get learn it properly because chances are the conductor is going to do different tempi than you learnt it. I remember the first time I worked with Richard Bonning, I was terrified because. I'd heard a lot of stories about Richard. If he didn't take a shine to you, watch out. And it was the Magic Flute uh, in Sydney, and um, and it was Papagena, which is a fantastic part. And Richard had seen me do something else anyway. But I got on like a house on fire with him. Great. He was just terrific. He was lovely to me. Um, but I could tell you some funny <laughs> stories about singers that he didn't get on with. Yeah. And he well, was old-fashioned. He used to say, stop all his acting and just sing. Because mm. he was of that era. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, whereas nowadays, and I'm saying to people like the young singers in this competition, you've got to be versatile. You've got to look a million dollars. You've got to be able to sing. You've got to be able to act. You've got to be a musician. It's, well, you've got to have everything, mate. Well, in the late 80s, you were a significant part of that That fabulous production which is still talked about of La Boheme directed by Baz Luhrmann well it was 90s actually 90s yeah, was it yeah, it was and it, it really turned around the look of opera oh, in Australia it made it sexy well, the thing was in the 80s I'd made my debut with the Opera Australia in Sydney in La Boheme and it was a traditional production of it yep and um, I, I just I was taught La Boheme by a famous director in England called John Copley and it was that when I made my debut with the Victoria State Opera, it was in John's production, which was another traditional production. But then, um, and we're all young, and Sherilyn Kamali, who was a head um, repetiteur at the Australian Opera, had come uh, in 1987. The Victoria State Opera did a country tour of La Boheme, and I David Hobson. I sort of imagined. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, and. David Hobson did Rodolfo, I did Marcello, Cheryl Barker did Mimi, Christine, my good friend, was Musetta, my other half, and... It's Christine Douglas. Douglas, yeah. yeah. And Sharon came to the show and she went to Moffat Oxenbold, who was the head of the Australian Opera then, and said, I've just seen this amazing production with young singers doing the roles, David Hobson. Who could cut the muscle. Yeah, and, yeah. and we were all good friends, mm. you know. And that's what Bohem's about. Yes. That's what all about friendships. Yep. And um, so, and of course, Baz Luhrmann hadn't come to fruition as a famous director at that stage. So, yeah. what had he done? Strictly boring? No, no, no. no that was between, yeah, just before we did the first time. Yeah. That's when Strictly Ballroom started right. uh, in 1990, and um, we. So they decided to do effectively what was called by the older singers that around the Baby Bohem. So we had a six-week re- rehearsal period. They had a budget of seventy-five thousand dollars, which was nothing in those days. Yeah, yeah. And um, because I knew and had done traditional productions of Bohem so well, um, the the first time you meet with the director and the designer and all that, we're sitting in the rehearsal rooms in Elizabeth Street and Surrey Hills in Sydney. And uh, what's your vision for this production, Baz? 
and he said, well, we went to Paris and we looked at, and I did a lot of research, and at the time Love OM was done, which was, you know, around 1896, young people in those days wanted to be different, not for political reasons or anything like that. They just wanted to be different. And I draw a parallel, I drew a parallel of that era to the 50s, James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, yeah. that sort of era. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So um, it was all shades of black and white. This is the, the costumes and the set was all on a revolve and uh, all that. But we all had, my character is a painter, an artist. <clears throat> so I had a, a leather jacket on and there were, instead of being a traditional painter like Cavaradossi was in Tosca, I'm like, more like Jackson Pollock. So I'm throwing paint and I've got this jacket with all these paint, paint splotches stones, on yeah. it. David Hobson was a poet, Rodolfo, and he had this amazing royal purple dressing gown that he wore. My brother, who played Chouinard in it, had this amazing full-length um, yellow jacket with a pork pie yellow hat. Um, the philosopher... Uh, Stephen had uh, it, it very, you know, these very old-fashioned sort of glasses, round glasses, with a checked vest, and it was quite striking. All of that, and, and um, designed by Catherine Martin. Yeah, that's yeah, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it was all this, and anyway, the rehearsals were closed, so no one from the opera company could come to the rehearsals. Even the general, which is always normally, you know, was closed as well. So. In fact, How did they agree to that? Oh, the, 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 the Moffat did. It, he agreed right. to it. No, no, whatever you want. Just you know. the kid, the so everyone's play. thinking, oh, my <laughs> God, what's going to happen with this production? Yeah. Is it going to be any good or what? Yeah. And even, honestly, David and I and my brother were talking, Cheryl, and I think we got into the theatre on opening night and we thought, is this going to be a great success or a great failure? You know. Anyway, as you probably know, having seen Bohem, it starts off... Um, in the in the first act, and then Mimi comes on, and they meet Rodolfo, and then they f both sing a, a famous aria each, and then finish off with a beautiful duet. And then the second act, which is the chorus act, um, we meet at the Cafe Momus. And of course, what Baz had, which you probably would have seen in in the film Romeo and Juliet that he did, there was a L'Amour sign yep. at the Cafe Momus, which is all in this bright yellow, a uh, bright red. red. Yeah. It was most amazing look. But in the traditional production of Bohem, you had hawkers and all those sort of people. Well, Baz in this second act production had um, drag queens, dwarves. Yeah. It was just the most inspiring yeah. the way he did it. Yeah. And um, and how was Mosetta portrayed? Oh, she was had this red, and she had Christine's got red hair anyway, right. but um, this amazing red dress that she had on, and there was also a walkway around the orchestra pit at the Sydney Opera House too. So the, in Act Two, particularly where all the, the drag queens and everything, yeah, it was, yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah. And at the end of the first act, um, where they sing, Amor, Amor. And they walk off, and there was generous applause. And then Act Two started. <laughs> it was going wow. And of course, anybody in any, it was anybody in Sydney was at the opening night. Sutherland was there. Richard Bonning was there. I mean, anybody that was wanted to go and see this production to see if it was any good. And the third act um, is really Marcello's great act because there's a big scene with Musetta, David, and Cheryl, and all that. And then the fourth act was where she dies. And at the end of, at the end of the opera, how Baz did it was that the lights went down to a blackout, and then we all had to get into position. The principals on stage, and the lights go up, and there was this extraordinary moment where the the opera finished, and the lights went down, and there was this silence in the theatre that was just incredible. The lights came out, came up. And the, the clapping started, and then it went frenzied. And it's the first and only time I've ever seen it at Sydney Opera House. The whole crowd gave a standing ovation. Wow. And this is on opening night yep. in 1990. So it was such a huge success, and you couldn't get a seat for love nor money when the reviews came out and all that. And then they decided um, in '93 to re redo it, but the ABC wanted to do a video of it. And it was really done like a film because there were a lot of... 
uh, cutaway shots done and all that sort of thing. And it went viral. It went shown all over the world. Mm. My brother was in London uh, for Christmas that following year after it went to... And um, he was at a friend's place and the Queen's message came on and uh, the next thing, <laughs> Boehm came on. <laughs> so they showed it after the Queen's message at Christmas when time. everyone was watching. Yeah. yeah. And it went all over the world and won awards and, you know. And I think that, that production some years later we took to Broadway. I think it was the first they, opera. Was it the, no, the they, production or a they new did, production? They did a production, no, and I saw it in Melbourne and I hated it. It was a modern production. Oh, I can't remember the girl who was in it. But it wasn't called La Boheme. It was called... Was it Baz Lemons? No, no, no. no oh, right. No, but this no. is on Broadway. Baz oh, taken oh, a production. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no, no I, I don't know that no, one. No. All right, good. That, that must have happened every night, that response. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was Very absolutely exciting. amazing to be part of it, you know. And uh, and I've done a lot of performances of Marcello, you know, everywhere. So it's it's my... Even though the part's not like a Rodolfo or Mimi, it's still... I love doing Marcello. Yeah. You know, I've got that beautiful duet with the tenor in Act 4. Oh, Mimi, tu più non dormi. I mean, it's a beautiful duet, that. So, yeah. Do you have a favourite role? Um, we'll probably figure on the Barbara Seville because it's sort of my personality and it's a great aria and it's a, you know, I can't believe Rossini wrote that in 15 days, 15 that whole days. opera. Wow. Isn't that incredible? But I've done uh, Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara, a masked ball, which uh, one of the first arias I learnt for the competitions was Eri Two, which is in the third act. And um, yeah, I've, I've just been lucky that I've, you know, but it's hard work too, so yeah. So one minute you're an emerging young artist and the next you're guiding hmm. emerging young artists. Oh, yeah, well, that's... Has time gone quickly? Yeah, it's... Well, it does. The older you get, Pete. Yeah, you know, the so days it, go it does by indeed, quicker. yeah. Um, but I'd always been interested in music theatre too and that, hence um, I got a phone call. It was interesting from... Um, when was it? In the 90s? Anthony had done Phantom for a year... And then Rob Guest took over. And there was a rumour that Rob was going to leave. And my agent rang me and said, uh, look, Rog, the um, Cameron Macintosh would like to fly you to Sydney because there's a rumour going that Rob's going to leave and they would like to hear you and do a video and send it to Cameron, you know. So um, fortunately, you know, concert work. And, and I went through about four or five auditions for the original role when it first came out and Anthony got it. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, I went up to Sydney and I worked with Joanne Robinson and uh, the musical director and they did a video because I had to basically do all, you know, I, I knew music of the night, I knew all, all the others. And of course, so much of the fandom that people, the public don't know, a lot of it's on a click track too. Right, Yeah. the so vocals. The vocals, yeah. yeah. So I think the fandom only sings for about 20 minutes for the whole show. Good gig. Yeah, good gig. <laughs> but Anthony was fantastic in it. And it um, then Rob took over. And uh, so I went up and I did, you know, all this and they seemed pretty pleased with it. And they, But then Rob didn't leave. So he stayed on for... You know, goodness knows how many performances he did for it. But they clocked you, of course, and did that lead to Javert and well, Old Deuteronomy? Yeah. Well, uh, Joanne in 93, because uh, I knew her from Oklahoma, yeah. um, she wanted me to, uh, you know, do the rest. So obviously you do an audition and, uh, and of course, Deuteronomy's being singers at the end. Mm. You know, you just sit on a tyre most of the night and <laughs> sing the addressing of cats at the end, you know. <laughs> and so it was shot a, up into the flies. <laughs> so I did that. And but then, did, did you have to stay on stage at interval while oh all the God, public came fun. up? Because Joanne said to me when <laughs> directing it, she said, now, look, it's up to you what you do. You can walk off stage if you want. I'll leave it up to you. And you can sit on stage if... Um, but don't really engage with the you know, because you're a cat. <laughs> anyway, one night, <laughs> and I'd come up and they'd, they'd be looking at you and saying, oh, and I'd be just sitting there going, with all my hair and everything. And one night, this kid came up, and he's going... Pulling the... And your I, costume. And I said, Nick off. <laughs> and he went, oh, the cat talks, the cat talks. <laughs> And then I just went back to... Be, as a cat would. <laughs> exactly. Have a go at someone and then go back to Not sleep. Not 
But then that led to, you know, I did um, the 10th anniversary production of Les Mis doing Chauvet, which I loved. I really enjoyed that. It was, uh, it's such a fantastic role. Um, and that's a different way because you've got to do eight shows a week. I was going to say. See, opera is not eight shows a week. Because of the demand on the vocals? And it's semi-operatic role. Valjean and Javert are mm. big parts. Mm. So you have to work out how to do it and not lose the drama out of it, lose the text. Mm. Um, and it was, uh, but I loved doing it. It was a great part. Um, and it's interesting because I'd, I'd read the, the, the book um, and you sort of form a, um, a concept of what, Javert is. He's he he seems just completely he's such a bad character and he's not. He's obsessed by the law. Oh absolutely yeah. and guided yeah. by the Lord. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And um but it's it, it was a fabulous part and um there was I did it first of all in Melbourne with a guy that uh was from Broadway and he had a great hit with ragtime on Broadway and he'd done um Valjean on Broadway. And he was a great guy. Tim Shue was his name, and he was he was fabulous. Um, but it's a it's it's a very demanding role that particularly because you've got to, it's you know you you you've got to work out technically what how to do it without losing the character as well. But it's taxing on it because he's got singing top B flats. Take an eye for an eye. And if you don't know what you're doing, yeah. it'll get splattered all over the wall, you know. Yeah. So, but it was great to work with him. And then Rob Guest took over, you know, um, when he left, and we did, um, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, all over the place, you know. So, yeah, it was great. Do you miss? Would you like to perform again? I mean, I know you do oh, concerts, yeah. but would you love to do a? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I think you get to a stage where. Um, I'm of the older generation, and there's another team coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Which I was in the in the eighties. Yeah, and nineties. And they're established and yeah. known and. Well, it's not that so much, but there's you know one of the great things about being a baritone is a lot of particularly in opera, a lot of the roles are either fathers or villains, mm. whereas the tenors are usually the heroic, you know. So one role I've always wanted to play was Rigoletto because it's such a he's a hunchback and. Um, and he's a father. Mm. Um, uh, Traviata, um, I've done. Um, and he's a father again. You know, Simon Bocanegra, I was asked to do when I was 30 at Glyndebourne. And I thought, no, I'm not ready to do this. Yeah. He's a father. And I'm, you know, I'm going to grow a beard and put a bit of grey hair, and, you know, all that sort of thing. But I think vocally, You've got to be older to, to do the role. Yeah. But then they they offered me Barbara Seville anyway, so that was... To bring that life experience. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure, Pete. It was... Um, but no, it's... Uh, you know, and I teach. I, I love teaching, and I try and impart what I've learned over the years to the younger generation, you know. So... Um, but, yeah, you miss it. I'm, you know, I'd love to get up and... But I, I, but I also, also have chosen the repertoire that I think is right for me. Yeah. You know, I've always said to younger people, I said to someone on uh, the, the aria final on Saturday, just a tip is never learn an aria that you don't enjoy singing. Otherwise, it'll, you'll, it'll, it'll be evident on stage to the yeah. audience. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, you, in, in classic theatre, it's, uh, you know, you've got to... When you do a play or you research, however it works, whatever mm. works for you, mm. um, I always remember this wonderful story, and you've probably got a lot of them too. Um, there was a, a woman um, who was doing the diary of Anne Frank. In have you heard this story? <laughs> yes. Oh my God! Go ahead. And she was—I um, better not say her name—but she was doing the diary of Anne Frank on the West End, and the reviews were not kind to her. And in the second act, where the the Nazis come on stage searching the the Dutch houses for um, you know the family, the family, um, she can't. Um, the, the <laughs> they walk on stage, the two Nazis, and someone from the audience yelled out, "She's in the attic." <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen if you were there in the theatre? Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but the performance was that bad. Yes, it yes. was. 
was not good. Not good, <laughs> not good, good. Jess, good to see you. Great to see you, Pete. Thank you so much for uh, this conversation. It's no, been really it's enlightening and um, just about vocal ability and, of course, your wonderful career. No, thanks, mate. Right. No, appreciate it. Thank you. That was good. Is that all right? That was fantastic. <laughs> Always a great treat and a chuckle catching up with Roger. He's a fine performer and a great teacher. More info can be found at www.rogerlemke.com.au. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Tony Lamond, Geraldine Turner, Caroline O'Connor, Ruthie Henschel, Donna Lee and Chloe Dallimore, a legion of leading ladies and all with fascinating tales to tell across all stages. Find the podcast on Wooshka, Spotify or in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast. It helps us reach a broader audience and share these great conversations. As always, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages.